Well, there are a few things in life that are more persistent, more stubborn, that will beat you against the rocks like the waves out at seawall, more than the questions that come from the back seat on a road trip. Can you relate to that? Have you heard those questions? They just keep coming. When are we going to stop? Where are we? Can we stop? I have to go to the bathroom. Then a few minutes later after we stop, can we stop? I have to go to the bathroom. And the classic question, are we there yet? Am I taking you back to the road trip? Do you remember the scene? Oh, those road trip questions. So persistent. Well, in the road of life, there are equally as many questions, questions we ask ourselves and an intensity that's behind them, whether we realize it or not. They start early on the road of life, don't they? What do I want to be when I grow up? It's a big question. Then you grow up, you get a little further down the road and you ask the question, where should I go to college? Who should I marry? How many kids should we have? How in the world am I supposed to raise these kids that I have now? And as the road continues, the questions turn to, what am I doing with my life? Am I turning into my dad or my mom? And we end up asking the ultimate question at the end, will my life matter? Well, as important as all those questions are, Mark 16 poses perhaps the most important question that we can ask. It's a question that I think is more significant than all these others combined. Uh, Not that those questions aren't important. It's just that the question in our text this morning is the most significant question that you can ask. Because the answer is the answer that man has been seeking since near the beginning of his creation. If you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 15. We'll begin there in verse 40. Mark 15, verse 40. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1014. Beginning in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. 
And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Never has a question been so cosmically important, yet so mundane in its asking. As Mark 16.3, the question is a very practical one. After all, they've come to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. Something that they were prevented from doing by the timing of Jesus' death, just on the doorstep of the Sabbath a few days before. They need to know how they're going to accomplish this mission. But in another sense, they ask the question that man has been asking, albeit unknowingly in most cases, since the beginning of time. Who will undo the problem of death? How will I be delivered from the bondage of the grave? Abraham Maslow famously discovered a paradigm for assessing the psyche. He suggested that some questions must be answered in a tiered way for a person ever to be capable of a meaningful and satisfying life in what he proposed as a hierarchy of needs. Among other categories on that list, Maslow says that a person first needs their physiological needs met before they can consider needs of esteem, for example. That is, they must have food and water before they can satisfy a need for prestige and accomplishment in life. No one is capable of getting those things out of order. You simply cannot consider one before the others accomplished. Well, take Maslow's hierarchy as an example. I bring him up to draw our mind to the idea that there is a hierarchy of needs that exists spiritually in the life of every person. And the foundational level of that spiritual need is to answer that pressing question, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? If that question does not get answered, there will never be any more Christian maturity in our life. There will never be more spiritual understanding and your development in life will, will be constrained to something other than that most pressing need. Church, these are not small things that we're talking about. It's not a convenience that people in a, a free and sophisticated society have extra time to think about and to consider. This is not a secondary issue. Your spiritual life should be the most important consideration in your life. That's what Jesus believed, after all. That's why he willingly went to the cross to give up his physical life. The vitality of his body was broken and beaten for spiritual gain. That's why Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is willing to face public stoning. While preaching the glory of Christ, he cries out in his death, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And it's why all of those who have gone before us look to something more than this life in the Christian faith. The author of Hebrews writes, These all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles 
on the earth. Their spiritual life is more important. That which they cannot see, they valued of highest value. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared for them a city. What a huge statement that is. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Who are these people? They have, they're those people who have their hierarchy of needs properly ordered. Those who consider their spiritual state to be of the utmost significance. That question of who will roll the stone away was their most pressing question. The most pressing question in your life is, who will roll the stone away for me? All of the book of Mark has been pointing toward Christ and his kingship. I've gone through it quickly in 12 sermons to get broad strokes. And what we've seen in all of the miracles and the teachings express that reality. That all of this is pointing to Christ as king. That Jesus is the king of his people and he's building a spiritual kingdom. And now as we come to this text this morning, Jesus has already gone to his death. And shockingly, those around him are throwing into questions uh, as to what has happened. And as we come to this passage, the resurrection, uh, no one seems to understand the significance of what's happening. But it's the resurrection that makes the kingship of Jesus happen. It gives spiritual reign and authority to Jesus to call and transform his people. And Mark calls on us to understand the weight and the value of the resurrection, to see it as significant as it is, to ask the question, who will roll the stone away for us? Because the answer to that question will change our life. When you believe that God has rolled the stone away, reversing death in Jesus, your life changes. So who will roll the stone away? For us? Well, that most basic, most essential question leads us to three other questions surrounding it. Let's look at those three questions as we examine this text. The first question, if you have an outline on the back, you'll see the order I'm going in. The first question that we come to is what does the stone mean? What does the stone mean? On that first Easter morning, Uh, The women did not know what the rolling away of the stone meant. They did not understand the significance of it. Beginning in verse 4 and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The rolled away stone meant that Jesus had risen. He was no longer in the grave. He was not there. These women watched the crucifixion and they they watched where Jesus was laid. But now he's gone. And an angel is there to deliver the news that he's been raised. The stone has been rolled away. The women at the tomb, though, can't quite grapple with this. 
And they can't quite understand its importance, it seems. They leave in a mix of astonishment and fear. But the resurrection of Jesus is crucial to our gospel. We don't talk about that enough, I fear. Our gospel is often stopping short of the resurrection. We say that Jesus lived a perfect life. And it was in our place that he went to the cross and died for our sin, exchanging his perfect record for our sinful one. And he went willingly to the cross to die in our place. All those things are true. But the resurrection is the clincher. It's an essential part of the process. Without it, there is no gospel. Paul writes it this way, If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom we did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people the most to be pitied. See, the resurrection is essential to our gospel. The stone being rolled away, then, is the proof that the work of Jesus is complete. His atoning work on the cross, that which he came to die for, is shown in the resurrection to make it acceptable before God. The pleasure of God can now be on man again because of the resurrection. Because the resurrection is true. Death, the great enemy of man, has been, has been upon every person since sin entered the world, is undone. Death will not defeat him. Our sins are forgiven and we have a great hope in Christ. That's the gospel. And without the resurrection, it's simply not complete. But it's not just death and the forgiveness of sins that gets rolled away with the stone. It's the reproach of sin and death. It's the reproach being any disapproval or disappointment that comes with sin. That all has been removed because of the resurrection. Our sin and the shame of our sin is removed forever because of the resurrection. Israel pictures this well in the Old Testament. When they enter the promised land, the Lord says to them, Today, the reproach of slavery has been rolled away like a stone. That pictures our plight with sin. We were slaves to sin, caught in the shame of sin of which we could not escape. And that shame has been rolled away as the stone has been rolled away. The rolling away of the stone pictures the satisfaction of God on Christ and of those who would follow Christ. Death and everything that comes with death, the shame associated with it, the reproach that comes with continuing in sin is undone. The curse and the hostility, the division that comes with it, sin itself gone when the stone was rolled away for those that it has. That's what the stone means. The stone being rolled away is significant. So that begs the question then. Who can roll the stone away? Who can roll the stone away? Well, in our life, we could attempt to roll the stone away from the grave. 
We try to do that after all. The fact is that we, we know that we're born in the curse of sin, whether we articulate it that way or not. Romans 1 tells us that. That we're born with the knowledge of something more, knowing that we're inherently off in some way, that we were made to worship God and yet unable to do so. We try to roll that stone of reproach away, that shame away that comes with that knowledge. Uh, Just as Adam and Eve did when they're in the garden, they're totally happy and satisfied in God and what God has given them. Then one day or one minute, however long it took them to sin, they enter into sin. And what's their immediate response? The immediate response is shame. It's reproach. They're ashamed of what they've done. They suddenly feel a compulsion to do something to cover up their shame, to cover their reproach. So they reach for whatever they can find. And what do they find? Fig leaves. That'll do it. I'll cover myself with fig leaves. Well, obviously, it's inadequate. They need a supernatural fix, don't they? To cover their shame. But they reach for that natural one to try to clothe themselves and to cover themselves and to hide the shame of their nakedness before God. We're not so different from Adam and Eve. Knowing the reproach and shame of our sin, whether we identify it as the reason for our shame or not, as we, whether we identify it as the reason for our dissatisfaction or not, we try to roll that stone away. We try to cover our shame. The reproach would be rolled away if I could just do that thing. If I could just find the right partner. If only I could meet the right person. Or maybe if I could get away from this person, the reproach would be covered. Then I'd be satisfied. Maybe we point to our career and we say, oh, my career is holding me back. And there's one out there that's so much better. If only I could get that dream job that's just out of reach, my shame would be taken away. If only I could be accepted by the neighbors. If only I had that bright, shiny object over there. Oh, maybe I could just buy the stone away from the grave. Find satisfaction in that thing over there. Maybe I feel I was born in the wrong body. If I could just be properly identified. Maybe I believe my parents were the problem. If I could just rebel and get away from them. You know, we can even find a way to try to roll the stone away in good things. Right? We can try to fulfill it in the law. Right? The law that God has given. We try to obey all the law perfectly. Maybe that will please God. Maybe that will fulfill my brokenness. Maybe I can be a great father, a great mother. Maybe I can be the perfect husband. And that will roll away the shame of death and sin. But all those attempts are like trying to x-ray a broken bone back to health. No matter how many times we look at it, it just reveals our brokenness. It just reveals that we have a deep, inherent problem. All of these are fig leaves to try to roll back the stone from our shame. But that shame is inherently in our hearts because of sin. It's the result of a broken nature. And nothing we can do will satisfy it. Recently, uh, NBA superstar Kevin Durant was asked about his spike in technical fouls and ejections. 
Durant said this, it's just my emotions and my passion for the game. After winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't really changed. I thought it would fill a certain void, and it didn't. We think that there's something out there that will fill the void, that will cover the shame as fig leaves, that will roll the stone back. If I could just do the right things, or say the right things, or have something more, then I'd be satisfied. It's just a way of saying we want to be the one to roll the stone away. I want to be the one who can get out from underneath the burden of this shame. But these things can't feel, fill that void that we feel. The need to roll the reproach away. These figlies of reproach are the reproach of the grave. And when we reach out for those things and try to satisfy ourselves in those things, we're getting our world twisted because of sin. Like we're trying to heal that broken leg with a band-aid. What's on the outside is clearly not the issue. It's the external is only the sign of the problem. But the reproach of death, fixing death, is the cure. See, our relationships are messed up. The things that we find identity in is messed up. Our conception of success is messed up because we are spiritually dead on the inside. And we need resurrection. That's what we need. The grave must be dealt with because these things won't roll the stone away. We simply cannot roll the stone away. But the good news of the gospel... The good news that's articulated here in Mark 16 is that God has rolled the stone away. God has done that work. That's the proclamation of the angel in verse 6. He says, he is risen. You won't find him here. He's gone. He's left the grave. A better translation of that might be, he has been raised. God has rolled the stone away. God has approved of the work of Jesus in the gospel and he has rolled the stone away paving the way for life forevermore for all those who would trust in Jesus. The work has been done, and the people of God have been given life by Jesus, who is their head. If they trust in Him, they can have life. The stone will be rolled away. Only God can roll the stone away for us. And He's done so by faith in the accomplished work of Jesus. That's how death gets undone. So we wonder, as we see that God has rolled the stone away, what exactly does that rolled stone do for us then? That's our final question. What does the rolled stone do for us? Well, Mark goes to great lengths here to help us understand that the resurrection has truly happened. That this is not a myth. This is not an allegory. This truly happened as a historical event. There's no mistake here. He goes to link to show us the verification that Jesus was truly dead. He says, Pilate checked with the centurion because he was surprised that Jesus had already died. And after he checked with him, it was confirmed. Jesus truly died on the cross. So Joseph of Arimathea takes the body, he wraps it, and he buries it. We have the timeline being established in the Sabbath. And the women who witnessed all of this happen, they see that Jesus was buried. They didn't get the wrong tomb. 
They know where he was buried. Mark goes to great lengths to assure us that Jesus truly died. All of this was verifiable physically. We can trust in the resurrection. But what's the difference between believing in the objective data around the resurrection and being transformed by the spiritual work of the resurrection? That's a big question. What's the difference between believing that the resurrection truly happened and being transformed by the resurrection? I heard a story recently about a man who went to a coffee shop to get some work done. He ordered his coffee and his little pastry thing that you can get at the coffee shop. And after setting them down at a small table, he, in an ideal spot, he, he walked away to go get something, only to come back and found a man sitting in his seat, reading a book. And he told the man he was sitting there and asked him what had happened to his stuff. The man looked up from his book that he was reading and said, oh, I thought you'd left, so I threw it away. And he put his nose back into his book. The book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. (laughs) Evidently, the book had not penetrated the man's heart. Churchmen were not transformed by the resurrection. We've not been penetrated by the resurrection. Belief has not penetrated our hearts if it does not result in some kind of change. We need the truth to penetrate our hearts. After all, the women ask the question, who will roll the stone away for us? Who will do that for us? It's not an out there problem. I need the stone rolled away for me. Who will do that for me? I have a personal problem with death, with sin. The stone being rolled away is not intended to be a courtroom evidence for the validity of Christ. Though it is true, it's meant to stir you to personal belief primarily. Have you looked personally, deeply at the debt that you owed to God for your sin? Have you seen the reproach of death in your life? Has the stone been rolled away for you? If the rolling away of the stone in front of the tomb is the foundational question that we need answered, then if we try to address the reproach and shame of death without the gospel, we've inverted God's design. And we must go back to God's work in rolling away the stone. We must go back to our personal need for that. We cannot find satisfaction in other things. If we try to answer the questions surrounding our shame in other things without addressing the issue that God rolled the stone away in Christ, then we need to go back to the resurrection. We need to go back to our need for the resurrection. The resurrection is the place where spiritual faith meets our physical world, where the two come together. If we're not transformed by that, it hasn't been pressed into our heart. See, believing the resurrection does not undermine this life. Believing the resurrection does not suggest that this life doesn't matter. On the contrary, believing the resurrection transforms our life. When we believe the stone is rolled away, we should be transformed by it. You might notice a little note that says that some early manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. There's a note in your Bible that says that. 
That's because many scholars believe that these were later additions to Mark's gospel. I agree with that. I think they were added sometime later. Because Mark ends his gospel with uncertainty. A choice as to what we will do with the resurrection. Will we believe it or won't we? Will we trust that God has rolled the stone away or won't we? But the addition of these verses, 9 through 20, in no way undermines the gospel. Because it matches the testimony of the rest of Scripture. It's accurate, in other words. What we see at the end of this book is accurate, and it shows us what happens to disciples when they finally embrace the resurrection. When it reaches down into their heart and they believe it. Do you see the disciples before that? They've been in hiding before they believe the resurrection. They've been protecting themselves. They've been protecting their lives for fear that they might be exposed. And when Jesus finally does appear, he rebukes their unbelief. You know, there's a lot to rebuke here. He could rebuke them, challenging them to be better men. Where are they when Jesus is on the cross? Why are they not at the tomb? He could rebuke them to be better law followers, to be better, more faithful disciples. And he'd be right to do that, but he doesn't do any of those things. What does he do? He rebukes their unbelief. That's what he rebukes. The charge is to believe the resurrection. We want a formula all the time to be a better disciple. How can I better follow God if I could just have eight steps that would lead me to a more healthy relationship with God? If we were able to follow by something like that, Jesus would have surely given it to the disciples here. But there's no formula for doing that. Mark doesn't conclude that that's the way to come back to God. He doesn't give you steps to be your best you. It's much more simple than that. He rebuked their unbelief. And Mark concludes with a charge. Because of the rolled stone, go and believe the resurrection. And then proclaim the gospel boldly to all the world. The resurrection and belief in it has the power to activate you from dormancy and fear to forfeiting the role that God gave you to being on mission for him and going out and making disciples of all nations. Verse 19 of chapter 16, the conclusion of the book. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and they preached everywhere. Well, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. They're activated by belief in the resurrection. They believed that the stone had been rolled away and it changed their life. The foundation of the hierarchy of questions has been solved. Who will roll the stone away? God has rolled the stone away. Do you believe that the stone has been rolled away? Do you believe that he has rolled the stone away for your sin and your shame and your reproach? Do you believe that the kingdom is here because of Jesus? That Jesus is on the throne? Believe the resurrection, church. That's the call. Believe the resurrection. 
then watch your life get turned upside down. You don't need a program to be a better dad, to be a more faithful wife, to battle that sin that's in your heart, to be obedient to your parents. You need to believe the resurrection. Trust the gospel. Believe what God has done. You know, Joseph of Arimathea is a great part of this story. Joseph is in the highest echelon of the religious system. He's one of the religious leaders of Israel. Those who, one of those who condemned Jesus to death, though one gospel tells us he was in opposition to it. He did not come forward and get in the way. Evidently, Joseph hid his belief in Jesus. But Mark tells us that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. He was anxiously awaiting it. And after the death of Jesus, he began to fully believe that Jesus was who he said he was. In other words, he began to believe in the resurrection. So he went to claim Jesus' body. By doing this, Joseph risks everything. Joseph risks his life. These men had just killed Jesus. Who would want to be associated with a criminal? Commonly, those who hung on crosses were buried in mass graves, but Joseph was identifying himself with Jesus so that he could take his body. He risks his position. What would the other religious leaders think if, if they found out that he had asked for the body of Jesus, as they most certainly did find out? He risks his cleanness. The day before Passover, Jan- Joseph handles a dead body, something that would have made him ceremonially unclean, according to Jewish law. Unfit to celebrate the Passover. So why does Joseph do it? Because Joseph understood that Jesus was the true Passover. That he was the one who gave himself truly and forever in God. That he was a child of God and that his cleanness came in spite of his reproach, in spite of his shame of sin, and through the work of Jesus. Joseph believed that. Joseph was one who desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called his God. And he's prepared for Joseph, a city. What about you? Will you believe that God has rolled the stone away? Will it transform your life in such a way that you no longer worry about what people will think, what it might cost you? And will you trust fully in Jesus and his resurrection and watch God transform you? Father, thank you for the resurrection. As we have said, it is the great hope that we have in this life. It is the great hope that the kingdom has come. Without it, our faith is futile. Let us believe the resurrection by the Spirit, Father, and let us see our lives transformed by that belief. Let us trust you to roll the stone away through the work of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.